electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, thanks a lot, Carl. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I am Frank Holland in for the judge, Scott Wapner. The last trading day of a pretty wild month. Happy Halloween. October set for some big gains. The Dow and Pace for its best month since the 1970s. The big question, should you trust this rally as we head into a Fed rate decision this week, as well as the busiest week of earnings? To debate that and much, much more, we have our investment committee that includes Jason Snipe, Steve Weiss, Jenny Harrington, and Joe Terranova. The last two right here on set with me. Great to have you both here. Before we get the debate started, let's get a check on the markets of this hour. Stocks are down today, kind of bucking that October rally that we saw. But as we mentioned, the Dow is on pace for its best month since January of 1976. All three major averages are on track for their first positive month in the last three. Right now, you see the Dow is down just about 90 points. Um, the Nasdaq also probably the hard, actually not also, but the hardest hit here down about a percent. We've got to remember the 10 year yield remains above 4 percent, just a tick above 4 percent, but still above 4 percent. Something to watch as we go on today. Our friends on Tech Check just discussing the impact of that on high growth names and tech stocks. Important to note, though, the dollar is down about a half a percent so far this month. All right. This is where we begin. This is the setup. Great to have both of you here. Joe, I'm going to start things off with you. The obvious question today can we trust the rally that we've seen this month, the start of this quarter, or are things about to get spooky on this Halloween? So it's a trust plus verify. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me. You need to verify from the Federal Reserve that the price action of the last several days can be confirmed. And I think, look, the Federal Reserve has the indicators within the market to move forward and signal the change. And that's exactly what you want to hear. Everyone's trying to search, well, is it going to be a pivot? Is it going to be a pause? Is it going to be a swivel? The reality is all you need is a change. You need to know that 75 basis points, that's historically unprecedented. And the Federal Reserve is going to move away from that. If you get that signal, okay, now you can verify, you could verify the trust that you might have in this. One last point on that. What's really important for the Federal Reserve is the three months to a 10 year Um, I don't know if we have the chart, but let's remember, you had a brief inversion in July, very brief, went negative for for basically a couple of hours back into positive territory. Last several days, that inversion has sustained itself. That's exactly the part of the curve that the Federal Reserve is looking towards. So they're getting the signal in the Treasury curve that Mm -hmm. confirms the economy's contracting. And they're also hearing from CEOs in the guidance that there's cautious concern out there as well. I do expect the Federal Reserve is going to change its tone. Yeah, I mean, they are getting some data points that show that things are actually slowing down. We saw our GDP report last week. That shows some slowdowns to inflation and things like that. But the question to you, Jenny, is can you believe this bounce that we're seeing off of our mid-October low? It was October 13th. The S&P hit a low of 34.91, an intraday low. That's important. Since then, the Dow up 14 percent. The Nasdaq up 9 percent, despite rates remaining over 4 percent. Uh, excuse me. Yeah, 4 over 4 percent, which is always supposed to do something to high, high tech. I mean, mega cap tech and high growth stocks. But they've managed to 
post a bit of a rally over the last few days. So I believe the rally. It's happened. It's real. But what I think is more important is putting it in the context of what's happening in the broader market. I believe that since June, we've been in a bottoming process. We are in a massive reconciliation period where we are reconciling 10 years of excessive returns. Don't forget, from 2011 until 2021, we had like a 16% annualized return on the S&P 500. That's compared to its long-term average of 8 to 10%. So what's happening this year? We're reconciling excesses. We're reconciling valuations, risk return profiles, interest rates, the way we spend, the way government spends. And so what we're doing is we're consolidating all of that. So we're going to have pullbacks. We're going to have rallies. I actually find what's happening right now to be very reassuring because to me, this is healthy. And when you're in a bottoming process, you're going to have rallies along the way. You're going to have pullbacks. And that, and it's just going to build up and consolidate into a foundation that in the long run, we can ultimately build off of. So when you say, do you believe this rally? Yeah. Do I think this is the start of the next major bull market and a rally that's going to just bring us back to like 4,800? Absolutely not. We have a lot of work to do still. And we're seeing things, right? Like tech lose its leadership, energy pickup leadership. Right. We're seeing individual companies bifurcate. So you don't just buy semis or just buy softwares, but you can buy individual companies. So I see this all as an extremely healthy process that the market's undergoing. All right. So you think it's healthy. Jason Snipe, are you seeing a healthy situation right now? Are you feeling encouraged as Jenny is? Yeah, it's, I mean, a lot of good points already made. I, I would say this. I mean, last week we saw Megacat Tech underperform, right? I mean, the numbers weren't, um, you know, as great as they've been over the last couple quarters. Um, and that, and, and we've, Jason, and we've steadily sure seen the slowdown there. We, I, I, we, oh, you all can hear. Okay, we can't hear him on the desk. So, Jason, I'm sorry to cut you off. Please keep going. I'm sorry to cut you off. Here on the desk, we couldn't hear you. No worries, man. Um, and then I saw, you know, obviously PCE last, last week was a little bit higher than expected. But I think Joe makes a good point in terms of wh- where is the Fed going from now? We got an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago and talking about a potential pivot or a change or a sea change in policy going forward. I do think that happens, but I think we have to continue to pay attention to what they do. There might be some dovish commentary. I think 75 basis points is definitely priced in, and then they'll probably do 50 in December. You know, but but we saw also a GDP number um, that was was better than expected uh, last week. So I think there's there's some headwinds, but they're also I think we're getting closer, obviously, to the end of this policy movement. Um, and, and we'll kind of slow into 23 and, and start to see some other companies do well. And I think, as, as Jenny appropriately mentioned, leadership in other areas. So that tech fallout, where, where is the cash flow and capital going? I think it's going to other areas, obviously, and we're seeing that with the Dow up 14% this month, which is the best since 1976. So I think there's, there's a lot of things to pay attention to, and we'll be watching very closely. Yeah, you know, absolutely, Jason. Um, a lot of money going to different places right now. The Dow obviously getting pushed higher off some great earnings results. Uh, Steve Weiss, before we go around the horn one more time, I got to come over to you. If there's anybody I think that would be positive about this rally and have just a lot of sunshine and positive insight about what we're seeing. The Grim Reaper. I know it would be you. There's nobody else. Man, I, I'll tell you, has anybody ever been so maligned for being so right through the year with the exception of the last few works, pro- weeks? Probably not. Uh, look, this market's gotten very tough to analyze. And uh, I think it was er- easier early on because you saw the rate, uh, rate hikes coming. But now I think what's built in 
and it was evidenced by the rally we have, is that the Fed will pivot. So, look, I, I think they'll clearly go 75 bips now. Is that in the market? Well, maybe, maybe not. Uh, is, more importantly, going to 50, cutting that pace back in December in the market? And I just don't know. I think part of it is. But there's an insatiable appetite to continue to buy. And I think you'll see that on the dips. You're seeing it today. I wouldn't be surprised to see the market close positive today after selling off a little bit, which it should have after the massive bump we had on Friday. But that's not where it gets really tough. Where it gets really tough is as you get into fourth quarter earnings, you'll start to see the damage done more so to corporate earnings. And so where's the valuation going to be then? And that's the best question to ask. So look, um, I'm, I'm slightly net long. Did I catch the rally? No. Did I catch some of it? Yeah, I caught a little of it because I cut my net short position. Uh, where it goes near term, it's really anybody's guess. I mean, look, I'm not trying to read tea leaves. All I'm trying to do at this point is protect capital. And I agree with Jenny's view. We came out of a free money error that was unprecedented. And I don't see that free money error continuing. And the Fed said that. So where do you go? You go to normalized markets. And when you've got a competitive 10-year at 4% and actually shorter duration treasuries at 4%, then you're saying, hey, you know what? That's a good alternative to the market and the risks that are out there. Right. So I don't think it runs away from us, but I think you have to be somewhat invested. I'm not bullish. I'm still bearish, but the bearishness gets pushed out a little bit to fourth quarter. Yeah, you're not bullish is the understatement of the year. Um, really quick, you're questioning whether you caught the rally or not. If you look at Edyard Denny's note today, he says the Santa Claus rally, it may have already started. He's highlighting the Santa sled is likely to be supercharged by the congressional midterm elections. Here's part of that note here, right here. Title, so far, so good. So, I mean, the question here is, Joe, is it so far so good? Is this the beginning of something bigger, potentially sparked by the midterm elections? Maybe some of these things that we're looking at this week. Big earnings week, the biggest week of earnings, a Fed meeting, jobs report. Maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe the election's the real factor. Well, we, we've communicated enough the remarkable statistics regarding the S&P 500 uh, in the last you know, 20 prior midterm elections, never having a, a negative return from the date of the midterm election to June 30th of the following year. So the market, without question, is, is getting in front of that. I think in hearing Steve's perspective, I think the first thing that comes to mind, Frank, is we're no longer in the market, I believe, where it's, okay, go to cash. I, I, I think that perspective has now been put to rest, and the perspective is now, okay, defensive positioning in this environment is warranted. Equal-weighted strategies in this environment is warranted. Going back and utilizing diversification, it's warranted. And there is enough between the midterm elections, the potential for the Federal Reserve to communicate something favorable for markets, for this extent, for it to extend rather, through the remainder of the year. There will have to be a handoff, though, on the other side of that for some more good news. Does it come in the form, hopefully, for the world of a truce between Russia and Ukraine? Is there something out there that's positive, that's kind of somewhat unexpected, that can allow for that handoff? But you're going to need that handoff in Q1 because right. no longer can it be about, OK, it's the Federal Reserve and the seasonality 
of the market that's the, acting as the catalyst. You know, Joe, you took some words out of my mouth, Jenny. I'm going to come to you, but first I want to read a tweet from Goldman's Lloyd Blankfein. He says, quote, seems everyone's negative on the market with sticky inflation, something we continue to talk about, more rate hikes, something you were just talking about, other bad stuff ahead. Yet inconceivable for all pundits to be right, but often all are wrong, he says. Positives may be lurking, and he includes some factors here, Fed pause, Ukraine truce, China lockdown, and et cetera. So sentiment can shift very suddenly. Um, again, we're focusing on all the things this week, which does include the Fed rate hike, our potential rate hike. But are we maybe overlooking some positives that he says are, quote unquote, lurking? Absolutely. And I love that you brought that that quote up, because the thing that's been giving me the most confidence since about three weeks ago was I wrote my quarterly letter and then and then things got really ugly. Right. And when I started looking at sentiment studies, you're looking at um, University of Michigan consumer sentiment, which is really a reflection of the market. You're looking at Yardeni's bull bear index. You're looking at all sorts of things. And all of those levels were at unprecedented lows, like since they started being measured in 1971 and 1987, they're the lowest they've ever been. And then people started getting super nasty on Twitter, like in a way that they hadn't been nasty What's before. Twitter? <laughs> What's Twitter? Um, so, so they got really nasty. And what Lloyd's saying there is that it goes too far and that there's too much negativity. And that's where the truisms come in. Be greedy when others are fearful. Right. Buy when there's blood in the street. That those truisms are true because they're always true. They always happen. And so what I saw when I was looking at those sentiment numbers is exactly what Lloyd's saying. Like, oftentimes they're always wrong. We see it over and over that the, that the piling on the pendulum swings too far. And that's actually what gave me the most confidence that there was a dislocation between sentiment and how people are feeling and what the actual valuations are. This time, like, guys, this is bad what we're in, but this is nothing like 0809. This is nothing like March of 2020. This is a ma- this is a mathematical equation playing out where too much money was put in and now it's coming out and the riskiest assets got the most inflated and they're coming down the most. And as we talked about, things are recalibrating. But you look at like the Dow Jones Select Dividend Index. You know what it's down on the year? 0.17. Right, not everything's so bad out there, and we look at we look at the S and P um, earnings. Sorry, uh, multiples, and you see, yeah, like the top ten have had massive reconciliation, uh, and but the rest of the market it's trading at a pretty normal. Sorry, massive reconciliation, but still yeah. extended. The rest of the market's still trading at a pretty or has come down to a normal valuation. Things are kind of okay. Again, this is not me saying I'm bullish and that we're going to rally and go crazy from here. It's just saying sentiment went too far. Yeah, the I mean, pundits got too crazy. You're saying things aren't that bad. We're going to continue this conversation. I, I don't think that's true. You don't? Uh, no, I don't think it's true. I don't think we're trading at a reasonable valuation. Maybe, okay. you know, you're still at a premium. Uh, sorry, what's your multiple in the S&P now, Jenny? Okay, but Steve, so much. Today. It's 15 times, right? Maybe it's 16 times. But if you take out the oh, top 10 and look at the other 490, the vast majority of the market has come into line with historical averages. If and if China invades Taiwan on the other side of of blank finds ledger, then everything goes to hell in a handbasket. Right. And 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 if Putin, who shows no signs of pulling out, it just doubles down and launches, you know, supposedly controlled nuclear uh, bomb, then uh, then everything goes to hell in a handbasket. You know, wait, so why, for why? every potential positive. Well, yeah. fair, fair ahead, points, Frank. but we don't have any indications that's happening imminently. Right now, the things that we're really looking at are earnings season. We don't have any indications, but, but we don't have any indications the other's happening either. So let's just deal with the facts. The facts are that the only reason the Fed's going to slow down is because they see the economy massively slowing. 
because inflation's not coming down. We had an all-time record number from inflation in Europe. Now, even if you break out energy and even if you break out food, and there's no real reason to, but if you break those out, you're still at 5%, which is two and a half times what the Fed's target is in the U.S. So what the Fed's saying is, hey, maybe we've gone too far too fast after the 75 bips and we're going to slow down. And why are they slowing down? Because corporate earnings are going to come down measurably. So that takes your okay. valuation today, which is still a premium, hold on, Frank, which is still a premium valuation to the 14 times that we've historically seen. And that takes it a lot higher than 16 times. So one more point, Frank, the, you take a look at Google. You could have said before the earnings, well, this is really corrected. Or you could have said it about Amazon. Or you could have said it about Microsoft. Forget Meta, because that's a disaster in their business plan change, but they didn't. The earnings came out and they got crushed. And I'm, I'm saying that's probably what's going to happen. That's why the multiple today is illusory. All right, Weiss, I'm not going to say you're not making some fair points. For example, our great data team led by Robert Hum says so far this earnings season, 22% of companies have missed on earnings, 33%, 33% have missed on revenue compared to last four quarters, just 18% missing on earnings and 26% missing on revenues. Not saying you're not making some fair points, but some of the things that you're bringing up, we don't have any imminent knowledge that these things are going to happen. You mentioned, you know, a, a rush, uh, Russian nuclear threat and things like that. I mean, I think those are things that were just so far off that we can't really deal with them right now, but we do have three big things this week. But we're going to get back to this conversation first. Let's bring in Jonathan Krinsky of BTIG, the chief market tech Jonathan, you're saying that we're actually closer to the tail end of this counter trend rally and not yet at the start of a new bull market. Thanks for your patience. Know you've been waiting. Um, can you kind of explain your thesis? Because obviously a lot of debate about this rally and how real it is. Yeah, thanks, Frank. So, um, you know, the move has been pretty impressive off the lows. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about something like the Dow, uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average, it's right back to its declining 200 day moving average, which is where it stalled out, of course. In August, uh, we also stalled out there um, back in March, April. So, you know, we're starting to see some some upside exhaustion signs. But I think the the issue here, um, if you look below the surface, what is leading the overall market? Um, we're seeing you know low volatility stocks relative to high beta. Really, you know, low volatility is actually outperforming high beta. Um, typically, when you see you know the start of new strong uptrends, you're going to see. Um, you know, low, low volatility actually lags significantly and, and see that outperformance of high beta. So our view is that we've seen a lot of this uh, seasonal strength that you typically see around midterm election years. We think the bulk of that has actually been a little bit front run. That's probably behind us. We think investors are kind of chasing equity strength, but they're doing it so in a defensive manner, which is, um, you know, a little bit telling from our work. Jonathan, it's Joe. Great to see you this, uh, this afternoon. So we clearly have a valuation reset in mega cap technology and mega cap consumer discretionary. That's well underway. How long can the market remain resilient if, in fact, we're going to see that valuation reset continue for those market cap heavy equity names? Yeah, you know, we've been talking a lot about the uh, the 2000 to 2002 playbook analogy. And I think, you know, what's what's lost from that period was, yes, it was horrible for mega cap tech and the Nasdaq went you know, declined 80%, S&P down over 50%. But from March of 2000 to uh, mid-2001, there was a lot of things that actually did pretty well. Um, small cap value was up 10% um, for back-to-back -back years in 2000, 2001. So we think small cap value is taking a little bit of share. That can continue both on relative on a relative basis. Our conviction that it goes higher in absolute terms, we're not quite there yet, but I think that rotation is, is happening right now. 
All right, Jonathan Krinsky of BTIG, we appreciate you being here and the insight. Thanks for uh, coming on halftime. All right, now we're going to turn our attention to the White House with our Kayla Tausche with a news alert on the energy sector. Kayla. Well, Frank, President Biden is set to speak this afternoon where he is expected to chastise oil companies for notching record profits in their most recent earnings, even as consumers uh, face oil and gas prices that are still extremely high at the pump. The Associated Press has reported that the president will go so far as to suggest a windfall profit tax, which is essentially a one-time emergency tax on profits. But we have not been able to independently confirm that. And it remains unclear exactly how far the president will go in his remarks this afternoon. You may remember that back in June, uh, he called for a suspension of the federal gas tax. That did not go anywhere in Congress. And a windfall profit tax would not be expected to go anywhere either. Two moderate Democrats, Senators Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, would not be expected to support such a move, nor is Congress in session right now to be able to advance something like that before the critical midterm elections. We should note that the European Union last month did approve its own windfall profit tax as consumers face incredibly high energy prices over there. Uh, but the political environment here on this side of the Atlantic would not appear to support such a move. But we'll see what President Biden decides to say this afternoon. Frank. All right, Arkela Tashi at the White House. Important to note, the energy sector, the best performer this month, up 24 percent. We'll have to see how that news from Kayla Tashi at the White House impacts that. All right, stay with us. The busiest week for earnings kicks off and some price target cuts ahead of those results. The committee gets you ready with the top stocks you want to watch halftime back right after this break. Stay with us. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. All right, welcome back to Halftime. It is the busiest week of earnings this week with 153 S&P companies set to report. Among those names are Qualcomm and AMD, two big chip makers. Morgan Stanley out with a note cutting estimates for both. Jason, let's start things off with you. Qualcomm down almost a percent and a half. You own it. Yeah, you got it. I mean, Qualcomm has been disappointing this year, obviously. I mean, you know, I would say as it relates to kind of the fundamentals, I mean, their, their fundamental stories, which has been positive in my view, you know, diversifying their revenue, getting away from just handsets, moving into the Internet of Things and autos. But the stock is down 35 percent. 
you know, the, the value in, you know, in trading at nine times forward, I mean, appears to be attractive, but it just hasn't performed this year. So the earnings were, were strong last quarter. I expect another solid print, but they're, they're really not getting a lot of uh, pepper in their step from just, just what they're doing from a diversified perspective. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes, but I, I expect a, a, a decent result uh, this Wednesday. All right. Uh, a little bit positive there on the chip sector. Weiss, coming over to you. How do you see the chip sector right now? Obviously, a lot of headwinds, but long-term tailwinds. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how to see, to be honest with you, because I look at it, and, and as Jason points out, Qualcomm's very cheap. Uh, it was cheap at 12 times forward, and it's excruciatingly cheap now at nine times. But you don't know what the earnings will be. And despite that, there's been no lift in these stocks. This is a real issue, and while, while China launching, you know, whatever missiles at Taiwan's not a possibility, the fact is that it is a real possibility that they go ahead and they blockade the strait. So that's where a lot of capacity exists. Uh, you also have issues in China with using uh, U.S. chips. So I don't know where it comes out. Um, you know, around here, if, the, if I thought that the nine times four were the real number, then I'd buy. I'd buy with both both hands. But you've had in semis broadly, you've had a lot of double ordering and as supply chain has loosened. You've seen order cancellations and you've seen massive inventory builds, which are going to, again, push back the growth in the sector. So so I'm not getting in there yet. It's a hated sector. And I think for good reason up to this point. So I'd rather stay in the sidelines. So Steve brings up an obvious point, and that's why sentiment is so negative surrounding the semis, the double ordering, uh, the lower pricing, the contraction in demand. And what's remarkable is I, I, I do think that a lot of the bad news has been priced into the industry. We, we witnessed that in the wake of Texas Instruments last uh, Tuesday afternoon, their report. And you saw a lot of the analog semiconductor names. They were down significantly, Texas Instruments itself. But you, sh you did see, on the other side of that, a very strong recovery. The SMH experienced one of its largest inflows since back in April. So that kind of tells you where the sentiment right. is. Overwhelmingly negative. Maybe potentially it's priced in. And then you fall back upon, strategically, well, how do I think about the exposure and I think it has to be the right exposure where it really is idiosyncratic. It's focused on low beta and it's defensively oriented. Well, you mentioned the sentiments overly negative, and Jenny, I'm going to toss it over to you in a second. But what we saw from the from the hyperscalers last week, um, wasn't that a reason to be even slightly more negative? I mean, the slowdown in cloud growth, while it's still growing, uh, that's a major part of the business for every single chip maker. And in fact, um, it's a pretty big headwind for them going forward if cloud growth, especially at the hyperscaler level, is going to slow down. I mean, Jenny, am I misreading that? How do you see the chip sector? I see it as a commodity. And I see it as a cyclical commodity. And I think that we, over the past couple of years, have turned it into something more interesting and more story-driven than it really is. But the reality is, is chips are a commodity. We need them for our everyday life. It's always cyclical. It's going to be only more, well, hopefully it won't be, but it probably will be only more cyclical as we go on. And that's kind of it. Like, this is not a mysterious place to invest. Things get out of whack, and then they recalibrate, and supply-demand comes back in balance. And so this gets back to the earlier Lloyd Blankfein comments, and it gets to the idea of the pendulum swings too far. Too much negativity sets in. We also know that the stock market and investors look out 6 to 12 months. So if we think that the chip sector is going to find equilibrium in supply and demand in 6 to 12 months, the stocks have already probably moved in advance of that. And you said idiosyncratic. And look at, and that's very important, which is 
NVIDIA still has an extreme valuation. Um, AMAT does not. One's a manufacturer of semi-equipment. One manufactures chips, right? There's mm -hmm. all sorts of difference there, and you need to suss it out. And that's why this is a hard market. Like, this is not a market for the cowboys of the past 10 years. This is the market for the pencil pushers like us, who've been trained to read balance sheets, analyze cash flow statements, and calculate valuation models. And that's what you need to do. And you need to see what's the difference between, I think we talked about on a while ago, right? About on and Intel and AMD and Nvidia. Like what's the difference between all those? What, is, what does AMAT do? What does Teradyne do? You need to figure that out. You can't just say, oh, I'm gonna buy semis. Yeah, those I days mean are over. I mean, valid point. Just look at the exposure to the auto sector, how that can just impact different semi-stocks are great points. So here's a question. Is hospitality a commodity? It's certainly been commoditized. Mm -hmm. Jenny, you own Marriott. It's set to report this week. All right, we're not going to say it's a commodity. It's definitely a luxury. How do you see these results playing out, especially on the back uh, just last week, Southwest Airlines saying they didn't see any slowdown in travel demand, especially during the holiday season? So th this is the this is a poster child of why this is a hard earning season. So and so earnings are supposed to be up 70% year over year. And what we need to do then is figure out, okay, what's normal? And if we look out to 23 and 24, we've got earnings returning to the $8 range. We've got 16, 17% earnings growth from there. So, so if you take those, you're like, okay, Marriott's trading at 20 times. They have 16 to 17% earnings growth ahead. Um, I think you actually could say that, that hotels have been commoditized. There's very you know, few interesting boutiques left. Either you're staying at a Hilton or you're staying at a Marriott. Um, so maybe even that has. But the real thing here, and this is what's going to be interesting, is what they say on the conference call. Yeah. And what they say, about, you know, like Southwest, about what, what's returning to normal, what's business travel looking like. And that's, you know, as, as worried as we are about this, inter this earnings season, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. We're starting to see normal again and figure out what normal is. All right, really quick, Jason, you also own Marriott. Just a quick tag on here. What is your thoughts about the earnings report coming up? Yeah, so so for Marriott, for me, I'm, I'm really going to pay attention to what, what does cross-border travel look like. I think Jenny mm -hmm. makes a good point as well as in the business traveler. I mean, they've got a really profitable fee-based business. They had a nice beat last quarter of a little over 8.5%. So, But there's a lot of things to pay attention to. I think leisure will start to pull back a little bit. But, you know, that cross-border travel and the business traveler is is, is key metrics for us to follow here. Yeah, business travel definitely key. All right, we're going to leave the conversation there when it comes to hospitality. But now, let's get to the headlines with our Bertha Coombs. Hey there, Bertha. Hey, Frank. Here's what's happening at this hour. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments for cases challenging affirmative action at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Conservative justices are signaling skepticism about the legality of using race as a consideration in admitting students. The court's newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, used a hypothetical question to ask how excluding race would not violate the Equal Protection Clause. Police have arrested a suspect in the 2017 killing of two teenage girls in Delphi, Indiana. 50-year-old Richard Allen has been charged with the murders of Liberty German and Abigail Williams. Allen has pleaded not guilty. Police are not releasing any new details on the case. They say the investigation is far from complete. And China has launched the third of three modules that will make up its space station named Tiangong or Celestial Palace. The 20-ton laboratory is scheduled to dock with the rest of the space station later this afternoon. And Frank, this is going to let them conduct experiments that can then be recreated in the International Space Station and vice versa to really prove that those experiments are working. Yeah, uh, space playing a big impact on our economy, innovation, and things like that. Our Bertha Coombs, thanks for that. 
All right, still ahead, the top ETFs to watch here as October comes to a close, plus Biotech's bounce trying for its best month in two years. And you do not want to miss Mike Santoli's Midday Word halftime. We'll be right back after this. Stay with us. Toyota Motors has resumed production of its first electric vehicle, the BZ4X, after a recall shut it down because of safety concerns. Last year, Toyota committed about $30 billion to develop battery electric vehicles. The Japanese automaker expects annual sales of its EVs to make up about a third of current sales of its gas-powered cars by the end of the decade. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Confused on how to get access to higher-yielding bond funds? Let's talk to the man in charge of the largest actively managed ETF in the world. Brian Lake is global head of ETF solutions at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. He runs the J.P. Morgan Ultra Short Income ETF. That's JPST is the symbol. Brian, $22 billion in assets, corporate debt, duration of one year or less, the largest actively managed ETF in the world. I was surprised to see that. What do you own and why has this fund suddenly become so popular? Well, Bob, you know that this market has been, you know, really dictated by how fast the Fed has been raising rates. And so investors have had to rethink their entire playbook. And so this tool, JPST, now comes into the fore. It's got an SEC yield of 3.2%. Yield maturity of the current portfolio is 44 with only a duration of, of three months. And so investors are using this as a way to gather some yield and hide out while the market uh, figures out where it's going Short-term from Short-term debt, you've got a large dollar exposure here, too, as well, right? Yeah, investment grade. Yeah, the portfolio manager, James McNerney, has been doing this for a number of years. He's an excellent portfolio manager, and he's, uh, he's, he's using investment grade, investment grade floating rate as well. Your equity ETFs are doing well. You have a, a big inflows into the equity premium income ETF. This is JEPI. It's uh, trying to mimic the S&P 500, lower volatility though, and you've got an income kicker here. Am I looking at this right, 12% yield right now? That's, that's well, exactly for right. For stocks? Yeah, that's exactly with, with right. With a stock well, fund. Yeah, so you've got a basket of quality securities. We're gonna collect the dividend, on the dividend on that, but then the portfolio manager, Hamilton Reiner, is gonna run right one month out of the money options on that, on, on that basket, collect the option premium from that. So the dividend plus the option premium, you're at 12% right now, given the volatility that we've seen. This premium, this option kicker, is a really popular thing now here. You, biggest inflows of, of anything else in the year so far, right, for this it's, fund? It's been a popular category, and, and, and that's why we're so excited to have Jeppy and its, and its cousin, Jepic, which does this on a growth basket of, of, of kind of growthier names. Hamilton Reiner's been doing this for decades. Uh, and the ability to gather that option premium in an actively managed portfolio like this has made it a very attractive. It's, it's only down 7%, which... In the, in, in the relative terms, is pretty attractive. Remarkable. Okay, we're going to have much more on the growing interest in cash-like ETFs coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. This is the hotting, hottest investment category right now. With a rising interest rate outlook, more investors are hedging their risk 
with short-term bond exchange traded funds to ride out the storm. Brian's going to be joined by Tom Lydon. He's the vice chairman over at Vetify. That's etfedge.cnbc.com. Halftime returns right after this. All right, welcome back to halftime. As you can see right now, all the sectors of the S&P, they're in the red right now. Um, but right now, we're going to pay attention to biotech. Biotech breaking out. The IBB ETF is coming off its fifth straight week of gains. It's now on pace for its best month in nearly two years. Jason, you actually own it, along with United Health, which is trading at all-time highs, dating all the way back to its IPO in 1984. Yeah, so I think in general, just, just from a healthcare perspective, I mean, it's a relatively defensive sector. I think as thematically, as you look at what's going on from a macro perspective with rates moving, you know, a very tight labor market, I think healthcare can do very well. The XLV, you know, up 9% month to date. I mean, the, month had, the, the market has been rallying, but I like healthcare, you know, defensively kind of moving forward as you kind of navigate through the rest of policy and, and going into 2023. All right, pivoting to broader health care. The sector's up 10% this month. Weiss, you're actually cutting one of your winners. You're also buying into another name. Can you explain? Yeah, so I sold Pfizer, and uh, it wasn't a big position. Made a little money on it, but, but bought Merck. And, uh, you know, Ken Frazier, who is, is uh, handing over the reins, he just did a phenomenal job managing the company, running the company. And as I went and looked over Pfizer's performance, and what attracted me to it, I just bought it just over seven times earnings, which say ridiculously cheap. And then it got up to about 8.8. .8. So I said, let me take some off. But if you look at them historically, they've always underperformed the S&P. It's been a tremendous laggard, whereas Merck has been a much more reliable performer. I think they're much better situated with pipeline, with commercial drugs in the market. So that's why I bought that. I like healthcare quite a bit, and it got beaten up with the rest of the market. So that's why I went into Merck. I also owned a little... Uh, I own a little of the IBB as well. Uh, as I'd mentioned, two years of underperformance, two years of negative performance is unprecedented. But, uh, but I'd sold a little bit of that on, on Friday because it had another big move, but still have a position in it. All right, Weiss is out on Pfizer. Jenny, you're actually in on Pfizer. You're also a little bit worried about their pipeline. Yeah, I don't know if worried in a bad way. Just that's what I'm thinking about. So Weiss said something interesting. He said he bought Pfizer at seven times earnings. And Weiss, this goes to your point earlier, which is what are earnings going to be? And Pfizer is really, it's one of these things where it's super dislocated from the pandemic. And so we really need to look out to 23, 24. And in 24, earnings are expected to be about $4.45. So you've got a stock that's trading at about 10 times. But then I have concerns as a dividend manager where I need to manage a portfolio with a 5% or better dividend yield. And now the yield's down to 3.4%. So, so I've got this real conflict, which is, hey, you know, we're, we, need to look past, we need to look past the COVID vaccine. We need to look past the therapeutics. What's it going to look like in then? But even with all that, even if I come up with a rosy story, I might not be able to keep holding it because the yield's too low. So I suspect that in the next year or so, it becomes a source of funds for me. I would love to hold it forever, but the dividend's not rich enough. So yeah. it's, a, it's a hard one. But I'll say this. Yeah. If you have a low-cost basis advisor and you've had it in your portfolio for 50 years, you're probably still fine, and you're probably still scraping a very safe, very nice dividend. All right, so not worried in a bad way. <laughs> no, you don't hear that like, very often. Just you're kind of <laughs> confounded. Challenge. Challenge. <laughs> we're, we're breaking out the thesaurus today. Uh, Joe, you actually, you picked healthcare in the stock summit. 
Um, you have broad exposure here. You have AbbVie, Merck, Seattle, Genetics. What's your take on what we're seeing right now? Obviously, a lot of people piling into healthcare. Yeah. So uh, specifically for you and your Philadelphia Eagles, Merck has been <laughs> the jail and hurts of my portfolio year to date. MVP? Uh, uh, oh, without question. It, without question, it's the best stock I own right now in the portfolio. And yes, at the beginning of the year, you had this significant valuation discount for healthcare relative to the S&P. Well, okay, now that's beginning to narrow. I do think that having exposure to healthcare is absolutely warranted, but now you have to be a little bit concerned. Are there too many people kind of beginning to sit at one side of the boat? Yes, the answer without question. What do you do? I think you again, you fall back, micro perspective, you analyze companies, you utilize the pencil, yep. you see the distinction like Steven's doing between Pfizer and Merck, you appreciate the dividend strategy of a company we both own, AbbVie, mm -hmm. right? I think those are uh, the, the type of financial metrics that you need to begin to prioritize as you look forward for your healthcare exposure. Right. It's not an environment where all boats are gonna rise anymore. It's exactly what you said before when you were talking about semis. You need to look at the idiosyncratic risk and the idiosyncratic aspects of each company in there. All right, something to watch as you guys are sharpening your pencils looking for picks. All right, coming up next, Mike Santoli joins us with his midday word, halftime. We'll be back right after this, stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Stocks moving lower this hour. In fact, the Dow more than 100 points off of its high. We're now joined by senior markets commentator Mike Santoli. He joins us from the NYSE with his midday word. Mike, great to see you as always. Frank, thank you. Yeah, it looks like some uh, month-end manicuring uh, of portfolios combined with the obvious pre-Fed apprehension. Yeah, we've had six Fed meetings before this one so far this year. In three of them, the market ran up into the meeting. Uh, in three of them, it ran down. In three of them, after the meeting, uh, you had rallies. And in three of them, you, you, the market backed off. So clearly no real edge in terms of the probabilities, in terms of the patterns this year. It seems as if a familiar place, even the bears coming into October, uh, were allowing for the fact that the market seemed primed for a little bit of a rally. Probably has carried farther. I think the traction in the average stock versus the Top-heavy indexes remains an interesting theme, and it continues. Even on a day like today, you have a slightly more new 52-week highs than 52-week lows in the New York Stock Exchange. So we'll see if that, uh, if that bears out as we, as we head into that meeting uh, Wednesday. Yeah, something to watch, certainly, Mike. Uh, I want to just throw something out at you. Obviously, a lot of, uh, I guess, conflicted views about the markets and the rally we're seeing. Mike Wilson out with a note um, saying that 41.50 on the S&P is achievable, about a 6% upside move from where we are right now, but also stayed disciplined with a 3,700 stop loss. What do you make of takes like this? We're seeing a lot of notes like this out this morning. We are, and I think it's because people recognize, first of all, that level of the S&P he's talking about, 4,100 to 4,200, is exactly where the market would be testing the downtrend that's been in place since the January peak. It's also right around the 200-day average. It's where the August rally stalled out. So everyone has sort of learned uh, the things to be aware of in terms of evaluating a rally and really raising the bar for when a rally has proven itself beyond just being a reflex bounce. So I, I think it's, it's sort of rational. Uh, at some point, uh, it's going to be wrong to say sell every rally. We just don't know if this is the one. Yeah, a lot of questions about that. And guess what? Scott's going to be back tomorrow. The judge is going to be talking to Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson about this note, his other takes on the on the market, where he sees it going from here. Again, Mike Wilson out saying 4150 is achievable, but also on the flip side, stay disciplined with a 3700 stop loss. That's tomorrow here on half. All right. Up next, transportation stocks, they're rallying more than 10 percent this month. And one committee member is making some moves. Plus, you want to maximize your finances and invest in a brighter future. 
Join us virtually for CNBC Your Money tomorrow, November 1st. You can register at cnbcevents.com slash your money, or you can just scan the QR code you see right here on the screen. And halftime, we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to Half. Transports are up 13% this month, led by Avis Budget, United Air, and Delta, all up more than 20% for October. Weiss, though, you recently sold United Airlines. Yeah, I mean, airlines are always a rental, right? I mean, because what's going to happen is, and they've come out and said this, they're going to add lots of capacity going to the next, going into the summer. And that's what always kills these stocks. So it was a nice trade. Uh, it was one that I actually made money on. So I took profits off the table, never in turn to be long term. This is a trading market. And when you have big moves like you had in United and big moves in some other stocks, then you got to sort of take some, some money off the table uh, unless you want to own it forever. And I had no intention of owning this forever. All right. Fair enough. You also own XBO Logistics. They had a pretty solid earnings beat today. Shares up a percent and a half right now, but off their highs. Shares are up more than 4% earlier, I believe. What's your take on what we saw from XPO and also that spinoff of RXO tomorrow? Yeah, so RxO should add value if you go back to when uh, XPO spun off GxO. It was a different market for grant, taking that for granted, but I still think there's upside to it. So XPO, I thought, put up a really good quarter given what was, uh, you know, what was sort of a mediocre best environment and point to strengthening in September in the environment, which is kind of surprising. But the spin-off of RxO, it's one, it's the most technologically advanced uh, uh, brokerage. Uh, you know, platform out there. So it's asset light. So I like that. So let's see what happens. But I suspect that the stock that that will have some value coming out of XPR. I believe Jenny owns it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any, any thoughts? I talked to some investors. They expected to have a pretty strong showing um, just in general. XPO undervalued to some of the companies that do yep. freight brokerage like a Landstar or CH Robinson. They believe there's a lot of room for it to run. I think so. One thing that Steve didn't mention, which is interesting, is when they pre-announced, which was last week, one of the things that I thought was really meaningful that they said is that they saw strength in September versus August, which is really different than what we heard from FedEx. So I think if we're looking for bellwethers, that's positive. The other thing is, to your point, um, Frank, they trade at six times EBITDA versus Old Dominion that trades at 15 times. So here you have a super high quality company, but they have like pretty mediocre, only like mid single digits earnings growth ahead in the next couple of years. So this is the kind of stock where you can own this for a very long time and you might get a really great return, but you, we, are not, we are not batting you know, for the fences anymore. We're just singles and doubles. And this is a really solid single and double. All right, there we go. All right, it's here on Halftime. Final trades are coming up next. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Halftime. Time now for final trades. Let's kick it off with you, Joe. Frank, unfortunately for you, we are not Philadelphia Philly fans in the market based on prior history. So we're rooting for the Houston Astros. Final trade, C-Gen. You could buy it here. <laughs> Jenny, I'm not going to respond. Go Phil's Red October. <laughs> New York Community Bank. Just last week when they, they had finally said that they got OCC approval for the merger with Flagstar, they're now extending that merger until uh, December 31st, waiting for FRB approval. But it sounds like it's finally going smoothly. So you get a 7.3% yield, really safe 68 cent dividend. Weiss? Joe, you're a Fairweather fan. Uh, Jenny convinced me. XPL is my final trade into the breakup tomorrow. All right, Jason Snipe in Philly. Go for it. 
Honeywell, really like the print. Again, another solid one. Hoban Building Technologies are up 19%. You can stick with this one here. All right, that does it for halftime. The exchange begins right now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.